Welcome back, everyone, to Africa's a Country Talk, which is a weekly talk and interview podcast brought to you by Africa is a Country. My name is William Shockey, and I am the show's host. And as always, the podcast is produced by Antoinette Engel. And we're very excited for today's episode. It's going to be a very interesting discussion, I think. Uh, we will be chatting about African literature and how it's performed on the literary circuit this year, what that means for literature in Africa, for African literature where it's taught. Uh, and we're very excited. And, and if you missed out our episode last week, that also was a very interesting conversation. We spoke to Puja Bhatia about the crisis in Haiti. So do check out that episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please, please, please do subscribe to us as well as check out everything that Africa as a country does on its website, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, as well as Instagram. So as I began by mentioning, it's been an incredible year for African literature. It's performed incredibly well on the literary prize circuit from figures like Damon Galgut winning the Booker Prize, Paulina Chiziane winning the Camus, Titi Dangaremka winning the Pen Printer, Mohamed Bougarsa, the Goncourt, and so on and so forth. And what we're interested in discussing today is understanding what does this mean for African literature, if anything. And I'm very grateful to be joined by two guests who are going to help us think through the subject. And the first is Bhakti Shringapure, who is a returning AIAC talk guest and is an associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut and is editor-in-chief of Warscapes magazine. She's the author of Cold War Assemblages, Decolonization to Digital, which was published by Routledge in 2019 and is currently editing a short books series called Decolonize That for All Books in New York. She's also a founder of the Radical Books Collective, which does incredible work. I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit of that in a bit. And then we're going to be joined by Ainehi Edoro, who is a Nigerian writer and an assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches and researches on African literature, political theory, and literature and social media. Ainehi is the founder and editor of Brittle Paper, which is a leading online platform dedicated to African writing and literary culture. Her current book project is titled Forest Imaginaries, How African Novels Think. She also writes essays and commentaries about contemporary African literature and culture in mainstream publications, such as The Guardian and Indeed Africa is a Country. So we're going to be joined also in a bit by Leila Abulela, and I'll give a full introduction then. Uh, but for now, Bhakti and Anehi, thank you so much for, for coming onto the podcast. And I mean, before we get into... African literature and thinking about how well all of these authors have done on the literary prize circuit. I want to ask a bit of a, I suppose you could say it's a naive question, which is basically, you know, what is the point of, of literary prizes? Um, I think for, for a lay person, at least for me, literature more than any other piece of art seems like the sort of thing that evades some kind of objective standard by which it can be judged. It's very difficult to say, what is the best for a lot of people? It's subjective and it depends on who you are and at what point in your life you read something. Uh, so yeah, how would you, what would you say is the point of, of all of these prizes? Because there's surprisingly so many of them and I, I think I only appreciated that this year. Uh, should I go first? Absolutely, okay. go ahead, anyone can. Um... Well, thanks, Will. First of all, uh, for for having having me here, uh, it's been a very exciting year, 
for African literature. We've had a ton of uh, incredible, um, you know, incredible and prestigious awards being given to uh, several well-known as well as lesser-known writers. So it's a wonderful time to talk about this, of course. Um, I don't know if your question is so much naive as it is philosophical, <laughs> what our prize is for. I'm glad you say <laughs> that. I'm glad you say that. I, I'm a philosophy student, and I think a lot of the, the questions we ask are naive, but I guess the best... I, 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 yeah, so, I mean, I think we... I lost you here for a second. Um, I think it's a... It's a, it's a <laughs> It's a philosophical question in the sense that, uh, you know, um, of course, the idea is that the prize validates something, the prize, um, you know, claims or creates a certain kind of taste um, for a certain type of writing, a certain type of style, a certain type of topic. Uh, so I think there's a variety of reasons why it exists. I think within literary worlds, um, as with uh, probably any other cultural artistic uh, worlds, the prize is very much related to the marketplace. Uh, it often drives sales of books. Uh, it often amplifies certain names and certain titles uh, that might otherwise have, um, you know, uh, been lost in a way because so many books get published, so much literature is published um, all the time. So I think prizes, for me, one, create taste, and two, they invigorate uh, the marketplace. And in a way, the prize themselves, the, like the Booker, for example, or the Goncourt, uh, and so on, also kind of gain prestige for themselves over time. So, you know, I think it's it's all connected with the market and it's connected with uh, taste creation. But I think the impact of it or the effects of it um, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of forms and so on, are also enduring. And that's a different conversation. The market, of course, is one among several points within the literary ecosystem. So we could think about the market as also being in relation to um, the discursive field that sort of um, that gives space for a work or a particular um, literary form to live. So that there is a sense in which the prizes as well also inaugurates or fosters particular um, discursive um, fields. It says that, look, there is such a thing as speculative fiction. There is such a thing as African literature. Um, and also prizes help to kind of curate the reading space, right? It's an easy way for people to get their heads around, you know, what is being published, what is being read, or what they should be reading or what they should be paying attention to. Um, and also prizes are great in the ways in which they, um, they, they give readers a chance to actually think about and talk about a particular book. Particularly on social media, prizes are great and they've actually become much bigger and much um, popular, I think, with the rise of digital culture in part because prizes kind of feeds into a certain type of social media culture of um, excitement, of winning, you know? So the idea that um, somebody is knighted or giving a particular prize is something that, that circulates nicely on social media as well. Um, and it would be interesting to think about you know, what prizes would mean for the literary industry as um, digital 
culture continues to be the primary space of um, consuming and, um, and engaging with literary texts. Against this backdrop of prizes serving this function of both validating the art that's out there, but also invigorating the market, as you have described, would we, would we say that all of these African authors winning this year, because it is quite an unprecedented number. Um, I think back to you, you neatly collected all of the prize winners for us and put that out in a tweet. And that's, that's very helpful for reference. Um, but does that represent something of a paradigm shift in, in the award circuits, which typically are dominated by, by Western authors? You go, Anehi. I think it does um, mark some kind of shift. I don't know that we know exactly what that shift means and what has precipitated it. I think it's something that we're going to keep studying and thinking about. But um, sometimes it's said that prices comes in waves, right? in the sense that once the market or the institution latches onto a particular figure or strain or idea, they sort of run with it. So who knows, maybe there's, there's a bit of that happening because with Garner's win, there is no way to control that. I mean, the Nobel Prize is sort of like a unicorn making prize. You know, they literally, there's no logic to who gets chosen, right? So I don't know that there's a way that we can rationalize or explain what happened with Ghana, you know, um, beyond just simply accepting and embracing just what that means for us and what we do. But, you know, you get the sense that African literature is becoming cool again, right? There used to be a time when we were the cool kids on the block, you know, Achebe, Shoinka, Ungugi, they were the toast of the global literary world. And then something happened you know, in the 80s, in the 90s. And as Adichie will tell you, she she could not get anybody to buy her purple hibiscus, right? And this is like the, the turn of the 21st century, 2002-ish. And when she finally got somebody to, you know, take the book on, the quote is that the person was taking a risk on her work, right? So this is a time when nobody will touch African novels by 100 meters pole because it's just wouldn't sell. It wasn't, it wasn't legible, but something has shifted. And maybe we could talk about that at some point, right? Where it's mm -hmm. a see African literature seems to be the theme. Everyone wants to publish an African writer. Everybody is looking for an Akweke, Mezi, an Adichie for their publishing houses, right? And that, um, there are different ways to explain what this is, this new interest is, you know, it's tied to digital culture, it's tied to, as you mentioned, the Black Lives Movement. Um, but there is a sense that African literature is becoming legible in a way that it may not have been before. And that readers globally are able to latch on into the kinds of worlds that we imagine, right? Um, and it could also just be that, you know, the book industry like Netflix, for instance, is able to kind of sell and talk about and make books legible globally in ways that it wasn't able to do before. Who knows? But I think that, you know, it's kind of, um, it's a mix of different cultural and social forces that seems to be driving this. 
Right. I, I agree also about the waves and I'm uh, personally embarrassed to say that part of that wave was because the trend was just Indian writing in English. It was like Salman Rushdie, Arundhati Roy, Anita mm-hmm. Issa. It was, they were just like the whole marketplace for about 15 years. And when I say Indian, I mean from India, not even from Sri Lanka or Pakistan or, you know, Bangladesh. They were just <laughs> Indians. Um, so, yes, so it's so true that these things are uh, so wave-like and that one feeds the other in a way, you know. Uh, you, uh, you Suddenly one brings attention to a thing, but then it keeps feeding. Though I would say that the Gurna thing was a surprise uh, and this list suddenly seems as if it's falling one after the other, but the truth is um, that we know a lot of these juries have made those decisions way beforehand, especially the noise start. Uh, prize, which was given to Babakar Boris Diop of Senegal. I'm sure they've been deliberating on that um, for a while. And then David Diop, uh, also of Senegal, who won the International Translation Booker. Uh, that was way before. Um, and then now we had uh, Damon Galgut. Um, you know, they have been deliberating that forever and ever. I don't know to what degree they were influenced. But uh, yeah, it comes and goes in waves. And that's... Uh, I think it's uh, super interesting. I think it does mean that African literature uh, is having uh, is having some sort of um, um, you know is having some sort of uh, not so much. I don't know to what degree we can call it a revival in readership, but certainly in terms of book contracts, certainly in terms of publishing contracts, uh, it's going to uh, it's going to be extremely beneficial. Uh, absolutely. You know, mm. and uh, some of it I even just call the Beyonce effect. It's like, you know, when you have one major, um, you know, person who is, um, you know, who becomes like the singular name in a way, in some way, there is on the one hand, it blocks a certain kind of production, but then it allows for many little versions of that same same person. So I think for literature, I would even say that uh, Chimamanda Adichie is... Um, uh, is someone who has spurred a lot in the early 2000s, some of this interest, some of this uh, intensity around African literature. The point that it comes in waves is, 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 is quite interesting to me because as you've both indicated just now, there was a time actually when African literature was quite popular, when the Achebes and the like were, were dominant and that wave kind of fizzled out and Adichie helped resuscitate it. And maybe that helped pave the way for a lot of the developments we're seeing now. So I'm curious to know, do you think this wave will last? Does it have the sense of being fleeting? Uh, is it just too early to predict whether or not the interest that's now been generated is going to be enduring in some way? Uh, and you know, how does, how does one even try to, to get a sense of of what ensures that the wave is 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 a sustainable one, and that this this invigoration is 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 more than than passing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very good question, and it ties in nicely with um, with Baxi's suggestion that you know maybe these awards happening at this particular time aren't as magical as we imagine that they are, in the sense that there's been a preparation right? That they just happen to happen at the same time doesn't mean that it's not been a long time coming, right? And that sort of helps us to think about 
what the systemic reasons are for the fact that we are winning this prizes. It's not as if, you know, the publishing um, industry finally found us and is 19 African literature is that no, a ton of work has been put into creating spaces of global visibility for African literature. Because once we can think about it as an infrastructural and systemic shift, then maybe we can begin to talk about what does it take to actually sustain this system so that we can continue to be um, productive in a way that is replicable and sustainable over time. And I think that that's possible um, in the sense that, um, that the interest that we are seeing is symptomatic of kind of, you know, um, broader developments in the African literary scene as centered both in the diaspora and on the continent. Um, and um, this is, is kind of a distinction that comes up at times when people feel as if African literature as imagined or seen from the diaspora is different from what's happening on the continent. And it's an interesting conversation to have. It's, it's a helpful distinction to make, but is one that sometimes I like to kind of bracket and suspend just because on the continent as well, interesting things are happening, right? And the digital space is allowing us to sort of exist in a much more broader eco um, um, system. So that I think that it's possible to imagine that there are things happening infrastructurally that is kind of pushing these interests that we are seeing, that um, publishers are publishing differently. Um, the publishing industry on the continent um, looks, looks different, seems to be thriving compared to what it was before, um, and that interesting global partnerships are happening at the level of the market. And that so as long as we continue to, to build and feed into these systems, this is, is um, um, this kind of success, you know, is something that could possibly last. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to build a bit on that, Will? Please, or? absolutely. Go uh, ahead. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with um, Ainehi, of course, that's something... Uh, is building and that's a sort of a longer history of the early 20th century and digital cultures that lead us to this moment uh, when suddenly African literature becomes uh, more viable to Western publishing circuits, right? So the continent has always been producing, there's always been all kinds of uh, uh, activity uh, taking place in, in some countries more than the other, more in South Africa, more in Nigeria, more in Senegal, uh, more in Kenya, uh, less so in some other places, right? Um, but things have been happening, and I think, um, you know, what happens when we then want to analyze uh, publishing circuits within the African continent, we end up at two very oppositional realities. On the one hand, uh, there is a poverty around, um, uh, you know, publishing initiatives, uh, capacity to engage wide readerships. On the one hand, there is tons of things going on whether you say it's because the continent is hyper-connected, people do a lot of reading on the phone, um, things like that. So it's like both can both coexist. What unfortunately uh, I would say remains a flat out reality is that 
whatever, whether we like it or not, how much ever we want to resist it and find it annoying, um, African literary circuits still continue to be tied with Western publishing circuits. And this, this, this becomes a big issue um, you know, and this is great when it's when you're thinking about the infusion of diaspora uh, writing and then the way in which it travels back to the diaspora in various places. Um, but uh, the, the issue with that is, and I say this many times, to me, publishing is the last bastion of a kind of white colonial uh, monolith. And uh, more than television, more than Hollywood, uh, this is the hardest one to actually reframe and rework. It's still, there's still very little diversity uh, in Western publishing in terms of leaders uh, in, the, in the big uh, publishing uh, houses, in, in terms of editors. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of um, friends who are writers who are, uh, you know, they would consider themselves people of color, South Asian or of African origin or heritage who experience on a daily basis a kind of pain at being asked to do the kind of edits uh, to make their work less foreign, more viable to a certain Western audience, uh, having a lot of uh, difficulty securing agents, getting agents to read. Uh, and then if you do get published, having a lot of, um, uh, it's a big struggle to get the books reviewed because no book uh, survives without without reviews. So the agent editor reviewer nexus uh, is very intense in in Western publishing, and it's very hard to break those circuits. I think it's it changes, and digital culture manages to move things. Prizes manages to move things, um, and we are going to get some great book deals and interesting titles coming out of this prize heist that has taken place and it's wonderful uh but i think uh structurally we are still in a very difficult place those are yeah those are incredible incredibly good points from from both of you and what i'm curious to know now is thinking about this dynamic that you've both enumerated between on the one hand the the dominance of western publishing circuits and how a lot of things have to be done with that sort of gaze and, and readership in, in mind. Uh, on the other hand, the dynamic between the diaspora and, and the continent. And when it comes to the question of building the infrastructure in order to sustain a literary culture that is rooted uh, in, in a domestic context uh, and sustained by that domestic context was it was it was it always the case was it always like this but Bhakti, i'm thinking back to another aic talk that we did on books and a big thread of conversation in that episode was about how there was a time on the continent where there was uh, a flurry of activity there were efforts to try and establish independent locally focused publishing houses People were reading, they were gathering together in reading clubs. Um, and towards the, the turn of the of, of, of the 20th of the 20th century and the transition of the 21st century, uh, that started to change. And I mean there's probably a whole bunch of, of factors that influenced this. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know what are some of them. And also, there's also a way in which maybe sometimes we do, we could end up romanticizing a past That's and awesome. imagining that it was, it was, it was much more um, active and much more uh, locally rooted than it is now. 
Um, yeah. But it, that's the feeling one gets. Mm -hmm. I would. I I will just give my usual uh, answer to this kind of <laughs> question, which is something I've explored in my book, which talks a little bit about the way in which uh, Cold War, the Cold War between uh, the Soviet then Soviet Union and the United Nations, uh, was not just a hot war. Uh, it was also a soft war for soft power, and because of that intentionally, unintentionally, inadvertently, a lot of cultural and literary in initiatives got boosted uh, at a particular time in the 60s, 70s. And then, um, you know, structurally, I think a lot changed again in the late 80s and 90s with the end of the Cold War and new political alliances and stuff coming in. So we're looking at sort of like an up and then a slump and then something else happened, then it picks back up again. So it's tied to kind of uh, politics and so on uh, to some degree. But I think it was real. I don't think we're romanticizing uh, the past. That moment was very real. That moment was so generative uh, that it has given us a kind of uh, entire new uh, literary lineage, you know. So I think that uh, I, I think... Uh, I, I, you know, that I just wanted to insert the very quick uh, Cold War thing. I lost some of, I'm forgetting now some of the other questions you asked. Maybe Ainehi will remind me. I mean, I don't know that I would think of the past in a kind of glorified fashion. I do think that literature today is different and is in a certain scale that I don't know that we've ever seen before. Um, I would say that sometimes it's possible to think of African literary history in two phases. So there is the pre, you know, pre Achebe, pre 60s, pre Cold War, you know, um, days that was sort of inward looking. And I think that there may have been something special about that moment where Africans were writing for themselves and were making all kinds of interesting publishing contexts um, and readerly communities. So in Nigeria, for instance, you have the Onicha market literature, right? Which are just market novels, essentially, you know, folks who just wrote things and, you know, for fellow, um, for fellow readers, it was a very informal publishing network and it was vibrant and fascinating and just absolutely brilliant, right? Um, but then something happened after, um, after the after um, the likes of Achebe and Ungogi came on the scene, there was this sense that they wanted to speak to the world, right? It was not about writing for a certain kind of African audience. It was, we want to write to the world. We want to kind of circulate within this global literary space. We want to be reviewed by, you know, by this people um, in these spaces and we want our books to be in bookshops and places in the world, the kind of outward looking, almost planetary idea of what their books could mean. And I don't know that we've ever been able to recover from that outlook mm -hmm. in the sense that African literature is still very much wanting to make a mark in the world. I don't know that that's a bad thing, right? Because there is always um, um, there is always this kind of um, how would I put it? It's something that I encountered in Ashil Mbembe's um, um, his new book, Out of the Dark Night. Right? 
that Africa, that decolonization itself had a certain kind of, of global utopian sensibility of imagining a world centered on Africa, right? And that this desire of people like Ungugi and Achebe to be read by the world is part of this dream of having an African cultural moment that could also kind of, um, that the world could look to, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, but, but I don't know that we've ever been able to get away from that, um, that way of thinking about what literature means in the world and does mm -hmm. in the world. Um, but there, there certainly is sense that some kind of African literary space that mirrored Nollywood has been lost, you know, where mm -hmm. we are always sort of not sure who we are really speaking to. Right. I think just to add, that's so many amazing points, Annie. Just to add very quickly, uh, the two, the two great, uh, uh, you know, like the specters that uh, over kind of the history of African literature. One is that Gugi Achebe they get exiled, you know, so they are then forced to produce elsewhere, right. um, and then and so then you know what has started back home the production shift somewhere else, but then also the Heinemann African Writers Series, uh, which I used to always kind of, you know, valorize or uh, romanticize. And I'm learning now, you know, even with someone like Gurna and stuff like that, like they haven't always been like <laughs> the most, um, you know, uh, they haven't always made the best decisions. They have produced a ton of things, but they also generated uh, this, outside um outside gaze or the or the gaze uh, you know wanting people to look look at us uh, or what eileen julian who's a wonderful literary critic calls the extroverted novel she said african novels tend to be extroverted they're always speaking to a a global marketplace as opposed to the introversion you know um anyway just an addition i think this is this is a good point to to bring on Layla, uh, mm -hmm. and very, very honored to have Layla on the episode. Layla Abulela is an author and was born in Cairo, grew up in Khartoum mm -hmm. and moved in her mid-20s to Aberdeen. She's the author of five novels, Bird Summons, The Translator, which is a New York Times 100 notable books of the year, The Kindness of Enemies, Minaret and Lyrics Valley, which is a fiction winner of the Scottish Book Awards. Layla was the first winner of the Kane Prize for African Writing and her latest story collection, Elsewhere Home won the Satire Fiction Book of the Year Award. Layla's work has been translated into 15 languages and she was long listed three times for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Her plays, The Insider, The Mystic Life and others were broadcast on BBC Radio and her fiction is included in publications such as Freeman's, Grunter as well as Harper's Magazine. So Layla, thank you so much for, for joining the episode and it's been a really exhilarating discussion and thinking about what Bhakti and Anehi were just talking about now, about the sort of, I guess, extroverted posture of, of African literature and we're being haunted by the ghosts of, of Achebe in needing to talk to the world. Um, as, an, as a writer, do you sort of feel that kind of, I don't know if pressure is the right word for it, but at least that you have to orient your writing uh, to 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 talk back as it were um well thank you for having me it's, and uh, i very much enjoyed um, the discussion 
Um, I think, yeah, I, I sort of agree. It seems as if we are now become um, African writing and African writers used to be, you know, a big, big fish in a small pond. And now we are out there being a small fish in a big, uh, small fishes maybe in, in a big pond and uh, very grateful for the crumbs of prizes that we are getting. <laughs> so, you know, for a big, for a big continent to get, um, you know this this number of of, of prizes. It 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 uh, we we are very happy, but it shouldn't really it shouldn't really be surprising because we are still a huge continent and we're still calling ourselves, you know, we're still defining ourselves in terms of African you know literature. Whereas uh, other places, they are still you know you know British literature or you know Polish literature. Or, or French literature, and I think that maybe in the future this is what will will happen. This is the direction we're going to go. Maybe by starting to think of West African literature and East, you know, the Horn, and then maybe and then going on to to individual um, countries. Um, I, I'm not sure about this thing about the pressure because I I, I think that that uh, it's a you're my for myself for example I moved to 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 the west and I started writing in 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 Scotland so that I'm I'm reflecting you know on my experience and on 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 my life um, so it's not really a, a choice that I've chosen to uh, you know address the world or or or, or inwards but it is part of the the, the time. I'm old enough to remember the 80s. <laughs> You're all young, I feel, but I do, I do remember. I mean, I do remember African writing at the time, and I do remember the Heinemann African Writers uh, series. And it was, um, and I was actually one of the people they rejected as well. But, uh, <laughs> but then later on, they did, they did publish, after I won the Kane Prize, they, they published the, the, the translator. But um, at the time, uh, there was a, it was a niche. I mean, there was only you know the, there was a it was few a fewer readership, but somehow there was more respect. There was almost more, uh, or to me as a young person, it felt that all these writers were grand. Tayyip Saleh were you know there were halos surrounding them. They were intellectual giants. Who are our who are our intellectuals nowadays? You know, um, so. This is something also that we seem to have uh, lost along the way. That we've become more entertaining. We've become more lighter. There's a lightness about it, and uh, a lot of uh, writers who uh, would have been intele intellectual, you know, giants of Africa. Somehow they, um, they, they, there is no space really for for, for them as there was in, in in the past. I would say, which which makes me want to ask now who 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 is reading on the continent um and i think it's interesting to to think about what you were saying earlier i know here about how digital cultures have this effect of, of freeing up a lot of space of easing connectivity and so many other benefits uh but at the same time thinking about what Leila's just saying now there's a way in which literature now has to compete with so much. It has to compete with Netflix. Uh, and Netflix promises you a shorter investment of energy and time and quicker gratification. So thinking about literary culture on the continent now, setting aside the usual problems that we've already hinted at of access and socioeconomic constraints, what is the readership culture 
like for, as far as everyone can tell? People are reading, <clears throat> and this is something that you know you you encounter a lot. Are Africans reading? How much are Africans reading? Are they really reading? It's like Africans have been reading for a very long time. I think it's it's very um, many African spaces are readerly culture, right? And this is if we, of course, um, sort of set aside, like you said, the socioeconomic implications of reading. Who can read? Right, and who can pay prohibitively high amounts for books, right? But even at that, there is a reading culture clearly. Um, and the only way I can explain this is through um, anecdotes um, in reference to Bibi Bakari's Cassava Republic. Now, Bibi Bakari has told this story many times about what inspired Cassava Republic you know, how she would visit people's homes in Nigeria. And she will see that, you know, there is no um, collection of books. How she visited um, the Lagos University bookshop. So this is 2005-ish, 2006. How she visited the Lagos State, sorry, the, the University of Lagos bookshop. And the shelves were empty. Right. So this is describing a culture in which reading doesn't seem to be at the center of it. But we've moved so far from that now. Right. Because in Nigeria, for instance, in Lagos, there are bookshops, um, there are um, there are book clubs, there are reading um, 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 events. So this tells us that there is some kind of shift between 2006 and today. And another example I like to, to use has to do with the um, publishing industry itself. Um, Bibi also will tell stories about how when they launched Cassava Republic in 2006, the printing um, industry in Lagos was pretty bad. They had to dump the entire 10,000 copies of their first ever published book. So imagine a new press opening up in a very volatile market and having to throw away your entire 10,000 copies because the quality of the printing was so bad. And because of that, they had to outsource printing. Well, two months ago, I was texting with um, Ego Saimaswen, who is the um, the publisher of Narrative Landscape in Lagos. And it's like, yeah, they still, they still print things in um, India, but that actually they print as well in Nigeria, that the printing um, industry has improved greatly. The quality is fantastic. So this, for me, are just kind of ways to measure what it means to say that Africans are reading or that there is some kind of vibrance, even though emergent literary book industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also let me add that um of course if you go on Instagram, which is the you know is the social media platform for book lovers, right? You get a certain kind of you know <laughs> back to his laughing. <laughs> yeah. It is the social media platform for um for book lovers, right? It's also a, a place to get 
a sense of what is happening in various African cities in terms of communities being organized around reading, um, circulating books, um, and talking um, um, about books. And so to me, it's clear that Africans are reading a ton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just going to add, because uh, Leila is here, and Leila was kind enough to record a wonderful podcast with me um, only uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things she was talking about was the way in which uh, the diaspora now have also a lot of money to, uh, you know, to buy books and to read books. And in a way, uh, in, in her case, uh, you know, it's like you have the Muslim diaspora in the, in the, in the Gulf or South Asia and so on that are, and of course on the African continent that buy, uh, that do buy those books and do read and invigorate and they are posting um, on Instagram, but <laughs> all, all about it. But I will also say um, uh, two other very quick things. One is language uh, publishing. Uh, if you talk to Jamma Musijama, uh, who organizes the Hargesa uh, uh, li uh, Literature Festival, Book Festival, Hargesa Book Fair in Somaliland, uh, you know, he has all the numbers of just the amount of books being, you know, cheaply published in, in India and so on, uh, that people buy up. You go to that fair and books get bought up right away, you know. They, they have to be Somali language books, though. Uh, and then, uh, you know, also the books that are published in, in Arabic, there's a big, you know, thriving uh, Arabic translation scene. Uh, and, you know, in Sudan, as Leila was mentioning uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, a lot of people buy, like, Western literature, but translated into Arabic or things like that. So I think that's that's super interesting. And one final point I will say is that because I run the Radical Books Collective and it emerges out of uh, not so much that people don't read, but that people are more into purchasing books rather than reading them. <laughs> so part of part of sometimes when we say, you know, readerships are increasing in there's lots of bookstores, you know, and I'm not saying I'm not one of them, but you, you buy a pile of books. Do you read the pile of books? You know, it's possible, no. So buying capacity is very high. Reading capacity... I don't know. <laughs> okay, I mean, can I just jump in a little bit, Leila, just quickly of course, before you contribute? I mean, I don't know that it matters to make that distinction, you know? Sure. To be honest, I, 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 I think that, um, that what does it mean to read a book, right? You know, the book is the only, is one of the few carryovers from you know the pre-digital culture that requires a kind of ethical you know commitment to finish it read it from beginning to end that's what i want that's what i want <laughs> I mean. you understand that's what i want the ethical commitment <laughs> it, 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 it honestly feels like a kind of you know like if you don't finish the book you feel guilty you feel bad and it's like you know but i i think that there is a kind of um of of value that comes from you know learning about a book encountering it on instagram Absolutely. you know reading the, the the tiny little caption on the book buying the book flipping through it whether you put it aside or not you've still you know partaking in some kind of cultural circulatory experience that i feel is 
is valid, you know, even though you don't you read the book. Taking this a picture is, of Smith on Instagram. This is a huge, this is a huge, huge, huge conversation. Huge, and we should we shouldn't have it. We shouldn't have it. Uh, we shouldn't have it here. But I, I, was, I, I I'm happy say, to remind hmm. Umberto Echo has a brilliant essay where he I was says, about you know, to mention. yeah, go ahead, Will. No, I mean, I, I, I'm going to butcher it, but I think he, in that essay that you mentioned, he touches on how it's, it's, it's important to, to collect books and to, to have a vast library. Because I think somebody asks him, um, you know, of all the books that you have, have you read any? And he says, well, of course not. And it's, it's nevertheless important to still buy books, even if you're not going to read them, as a reminder of how little you know. And just being uh, immersed by and surrounded by books is and that is you get something that, that the wines exactly. give you they give you something it's a cosmic <laughs> Os experience osmosis yes <laughs> yeah and you know my you know my tweet never went viral but I was saying that photographing books is also the same thing yes no no I completely agree with you that you know that the, the idea of buying a book and then creating media content out of it by photographing yourself posting it on, on Instagram and writing a caption itself, it is creating some kind of value from the book, right? Sure. And it's actively placing the book in circulation so that someone else can encounter the book and maybe have a different relationship to the book, buy it and read it from page to page, right? That That's so, I think that today our idea of what it means to encounter books, read books, mm -hmm. is should be capacious and go beyond you know well have you read the entire book question should be have you taken your instagram photograph <laughs> uh, getting back to to the reception of books in on the continent leila i'm interested to hear some of your thoughts on this as bhakti was mentioning just now uh you've been i think surprised by the ways in which your books have been received uh on the continent uh and over the years of writing, how have you noticed an increase in the amount of people in Africa reading your books, engaging them, taking photographs and putting them on Instagram? Uh, and, and what has that been like? Yeah, I think that um, what what I find the biggest change is the, is, is this uh, these young women, and there's so many young women in Africa educated, um, you know, uh, um, independent, wanting to read, wanting to buy books, wanting to engage with books, uh, reading means a lot to them. They are especially young women. I mean, in Sudan, still the literary scene is very, very masculine. Um, I, I went once, my, uh, I was living in Abu Dhabi and my, uh, my publisher came to Abu Dhabi and he gave a talk in the Sudan uh, Sudanese club. There's a Sudanese club in Abu Dhabi. And I went and there was like maybe a hundred people and I was the only woman in, in, the, in the room. It was really quite startling. So it, so in Sudan, it's, the, the, the scene is very, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be very male dominated, but I think that that has been one of the changes I've noticed. You know, so many young articulate uh, women wanting to read, wanting to engage with books. And of course, that's, that's, that's also related to uh, edu education and, and university education and uh, having uh, professors such as yourself here teaching, you know, uh, literature. And um, so that is, is, is very important. I, I think that um, um, 
I feel I have a feeling that the prizes now have be have become very powerful and and almost a little bit too too powerful. And I, for me, the the the, um, the academics are the ones who are countering this this power of the prize, which is the prize is so much associated with you know uh, money and uh, book sales and um, things like that. Whereas the academics, they're the ones who see the book in context and they're the ones who can speak so um you know with such understanding about uh, about uh, the, a particular novel and i think that that is is is, is very important I'm, I'm 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 curious now to get into the this the discussion about uh the prizes and how they've become too powerful as as you put it and earlier bhakti and anehi were also talking about how the prizes serve an important role in in boosting literary sales in sustaining the marketplace and so on and so forth when it comes to when it comes to publishing it seems like literature is traveling the direction of most industries where as power is being consolidated in the prizes power is also being consolidated uh, amongst major publishers uh, there's a term for the big publishers in literature as well now, they're called the Big Five. And there's a way in which I was reading an interesting article on the Financial Times about this, where there was a big worry that the, the, the growth of, of, of digital media would, would outmode publishing because people would exclusively read on their computers and, and on their phones. And that's actually been the opposite. It's, it seems to be quite a, a, quite a robust industry, one that is continuing to grow and one that continues to grow as it's as it's boosted along by by literary prizes. Um, is there a way in which literature might get lost in all of that? It might get too determined by market dynamics, the logic of capitalism, so on and so forth. Uh, or, or have we not noticed that effect yet? No, it, it, this is this is true. I mean, we, we can see that the, the way that the prizes are powerful and that how they know that they are powerful. I mean, we all heard Abdelaziz, uh, Abdelazak Gurner talk about how he heard the news. You know, he gets this phone call just out of the blue. Somebody phones him and says to him, oh, you won the, the Nobel Prize. So think about it. I mean, how did these people get his phone number? And they're phoning elderly people to tell them out of the blue you've won, you know, the Nobel Prize. What if this person is ill? What if they're you know, uh, bereaved, recently bereaved? You know, it's, it's, it can happen in this age group. So, and it's, it's, it's not a joke. I mean, why, why, how do you, how, what gives you the right to behave in this way? It's because of your power. You are like bestowing this prize on someone. So it doesn't matter that you, you know, uh, knock them down with a stroke or whatever. You're just, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're giving them this wonderful uh, gift. And, and the prizes also, they seem to have uh, they divide writers. They're, they're, they're making us compete against each other. When we, we, we should be maybe working together. We're not working together anymore. We are, we are rivals. We have become rivals. And, and uh, there was a time even in the, in the mid-noughties, I hope that that's not the case now, and, and that has been a change as well, where um, it was seemed to be like an unspoken rule that in every prize shortlist, there would only be one slot for the African writer or one slot for the of person of color 
you know, either African or whatever. And so if this person was so and so, it would not be so somebody else. They won't have two in the in the, in the panel. And uh, that has changed now. And they've got, you know, uh, in the jury, there's uh, there's uh, African writers. And I think that that is the structural, some of the structural changes that uh, Ainea was speaking about. When you have African in, uh, judges in, in the in the jury, when you have, uh, you know, African uh, editors and all this, this is the structural changes that we're looking at. The reason the Nobel is so mysterious to us is because we have no idea how it's run and who's who are these people. So uh, again, what, if this is really an international prize, you know, somebody, somebody should be there on this prize uh, committee. So, um, I mean, th th there's this other side to, to, to prizes. And I think that one of the ways that the, 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 the balance that we're having is the, the academics. I think that they are the ones who are now, uh, you know, balancing a little bit. Mm. And and Bhakti and, and Anehi, what do you what do you guys think? Um, Leila, you're absolutely right that um, the prizes have become um, very um, they, they, they've developed this inflated sense of themselves, and I never even thought about the example you gave, but. <laughs> <laughs> the audacity it takes to call somebody out of the blue to say, you know, you're sleeping at 4 a.m. in the morning. Hello, you know, you've won a prize, right? It, it's it's a reflection of how they imagine themselves in an almost godlike fashion. Exactly. Um, I I think that I would like to see, for me, um, more of the of the global capital kind of move to the continent. Right. So just imagine how much Gorna's publishers are all making from all the rights that they are selling right now, you know, but none of that is coming to the continent because I do not think that his books were ever originally published on the continent. I don't know. Right. That, that, so those are the kinds of, I will say, systemic changes I want to happen. I want publishers on the continent to get access to the global flow of capital that comes from things like prices, right? Um, so th there is um, the, um, the Nigerian writer, Cheluchi Oyemelukwe. Her novel was published originally in Lagos and they've been able to sell rights to various publishers around the world. I want to see more of that as opposed to the other way around where African publishers buy rights from, you know, buy rights of African books published in the West, which is just absurd because we are enriching these publishers with a little bit of amount, sorry, with the little bit of money that is there on the continent, you know, that so are there ways that we can open up the African literary um, market so that publishers and writers can also gain from the windfall that we're all talking about. If books are kind of gaining ground, gaining some sort of new ground in the cultural field, I would like the continents um, to be poised to um, make gains from that um, um, development. Uh, you're on mute, Bhakti. Sorry. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree very much. I think the flows of capital have to uh, alter structurally in every possible sense so that uh, a whole range of people can benefit and uh, not just, you know, the million dollars for X and million dollars for Y, uh, even though, um, you know, they may pay it forward or put it into certain projects and so on, but that can't be the ex expectation, obviously. I think the price is becoming too powerful uh, is an interesting thing also because I do feel um, that uh, it, it, while it seems to open up something, that opening up is uneven because it also locks us into certain forms or what is considered marketable or was, what is considered prize, what, what in film world they call prize bait. You make a prize bait movie, but we also have prize bait literature, literature that will uh, is like you read it, et cetera, et cetera. And then immediately what it becomes is becomes a kind of prize literature that will win prizes. It may not sell the exact amount of copies a publisher wants, but it gains a different kind of currency. So, you know, and I'm, I'm still recovering from this. Uh, I had a, a Ugandan novelist, Jennifer Makumbi, uh, come and um, come and give a talk at the university where I teach. It was an online uh, talk. Uh, and she gave an incredible talk on uh, readerships, on how her writing was altered when she stopped thinking that she needs to write to a certain type of readership. Um, and along the way, she also revealed that in her latest book, A Girl is a Body of Water, um, you know, um, there is kind of, you know, the, the book is incredible. It's about a young girl, Chirabo, who's coming of age uh, in 70s and 80s Uganda. And then uh, it also has a backstory of these grandmothers. So you have... You, you have this young generation and then you have this grandmother's generation uh, that are that are explored in the book. And then there is the mother that this young protagonist is looking for and the, and the mother is absent. So she, one of the questions she got was, why didn't you develop that middle generation, that mother's generation? And she said, oh, you know, the, there were too many um, pages, so they cut it. They just cut the whole section on the mother of the protagonist, uh, Chirabo. And I, I just, I felt, you know, she was very normal about it. She felt that it held up without, and I think the book holds up without that section, but it was like she had wounded, <laughs> wounded me somehow. Um, so, you know, so this is the kind of extraordinary power of agents and publishers. And I think when you say a prize becomes too powerful, you have to ask um, in what way it empowers publishers and editors and agents who often develop manuscripts to also um, uh, enact certain force changes uh, to, to the work, to make it fit into certain genres, to make it fit into certain consumable, uh, um, you know, types of categories. And As let me just... Go ahead. Let me just add quickly that that, you know, it, it's possible to imagine a literary practice in which, you know, there are attempts to fit texts into categories so that they can sell in a particular kind of way. And Baxi is absolutely right that that is problematic itself and that there are ways in which it impoverishes the literary um, experience. But I would say, um, I would say that you know what 
I hope for is a space that allows, you know, um, different kinds of texts to exist and have the time of day, right? That, that, that a world in which the booker becomes the only arbiter of what is read and what is, um, is bought and sold is, is perhaps a problematic world. But, you know, the hope will be that alongside the booker, we have other spaces that allows text to circulate in other ways. So for example, what Bakhti does with, um, with the Radical Books um, Collective is important in the sense that it's also trying to kind of clear out a space for us to see other kinds of books to be, um, to be visible. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and speaking of allowing for, for new arbiters uh, to, to enter into the scene and for, for new spaces, perhaps as a, as a final question to all of you, if we were to inaugurate the initial AIAC Literary Prize, which I, I hereby bring into being, <laughs> and this is the jury that I've convened today, uh, and if you had to choose one piece of writing, uh, recently published piece of, of writing, African writing, uh, that you that you think is prize worthy, uh, it can be one of the, or oh, it could be, I'm actually not even sure, see, I'm not even sure how prizes work. I don't know if it has to be a recent uh, piece of writing or something for an author, but whatever, this, this prize works in, in whatever way we wish, but it can be someone who's won already this year. It can be someone who hasn't been recognized. Um, who who would you recognize uh, or which book would you give an award to and why? I feel like I've taken up so much Leila's time. We, she should go first. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna go shout out for uh, Abdelaziz Baraka Sakin, so Sudanese writer. Absolutely. Yes, who needs to reach African readers, and uh, his he writes in Arabic, and uh, he's got his books uh, translated, and he's on the lookout now for uh, for a publisher. So please get in touch. He should talk to me. He should talk to me. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> I can. Yeah. You'll Let's get an email. I'll send you an email after okay. this. <laughs> We're changing yeah. the game already. <laughs> yes, look at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, well, first I would say, let's not call it AIAC because I just never know what it is. Uh, Africa is a country. Like, that's a cool, cool title. <laughs> okay, Africa, there we go. The Africa is a country price. It's just long, so I thought people might have, you know, already thinking yeah. about market It's catchy. It's long, but catchy. It's catchy long, yeah. Catchy is okay. cool. Uh, no, you know, I mean, this is something when I started Radical Books Collective, which is only like six or seven months old, uh, I had uh, some publishers approach me about a potential Radical Book Award, uh, uh, which essentially is an attempt to synthesize um, what is political literature. You know what I mean? What sort of literature can do political work uh, and how can we uh, reward that? Because People, because often writers who do political work uh, are not only are they not rewarded for it, they often kind of they are the losers in the in the in the in the market in a way, you know. So how can it be? So someone like Sitsi Dangaremba is having an extraordinary moment right now, the Pen Printer Prize. Last year she had the nomination for the Booker, but uh, 
I mean, nervous conditions uh, was sold and published year after year after year. She didn't get, uh, you know, she didn't get the profit uh, outputs of it because the contract was badly structured. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, it's the kind of book that uh, is infinitely readable, but also gets left out because it's also intensely political and bleak um, at the same time. So, you know, a way to somehow reward uh, literary form, literary innovation, but also a kind of um, a certain kind of politics. That would be, it's a very specific to me as uh, <laughs> this, this kind of uh, thought. And the person, the founding editor of uh, Africa's a Country, Sean Jacobs, and I often have this uh, particular chat about how to fuse those concerns together. So what so book? I'll I'll do the same thing Anne said and say send send me an email as well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should scrap the Africa as a country prize and just stick to the radical radical book award. I like the sound of that. Uh, yeah. Anahi. Back to you didn't say what book. What book? That what? Is true. What What is the question? Where? Oh, what book will win the award? Is it Titi Dangarangba's work? No, I think it will be Abdulaziz Barakasakin, whose Ooh. very little work I've read in English okay. translation. Uh, almost, are, almost unanimous. You know, that, you know that when they were like, who is Abdul Razak Karna? And I, I did a shady, uh, um, cheap tweet on Twitter where I said, here are some other undiscovered uh, African writers. And Abdulaziz uh, uh, Abdul Barakasakin was certainly one of them. Uh, and as was is Boris Diop, who then just won the Noise Start. So I'm very, very happy um, about that. So, you know, I like these uh, people. I would, I would also, uh, I, I happen to know that Leila Abulela is working on a, a brilliant new historical novel <laughs> from Sudan. And I'm going to line it up for all the awards right away because I know all her work really, really well. And I think uh, I have no doubt this one will be brilliant as well. So. Thank you. <laughs> it's, al it's always Sudan and Somalia for the win with me. So that's an easy, that's easy. Oh, you nice. have to toe the line now, Inehi. Um, Thank you for bringing up um, Leila's Instagram. That's really cool. I like it when, when social media is the go-to place um, for literary things. Um, I, I would say that for me, it'll have to be... Um, a book that I've really loved, um, you know, um, for a while. Um, the It's titled An Ordinary Wonder by Bookie Papillon. And um, the book centers a an intersex Nigerian girl. And um, it is beautiful in the ways that it shifts one's perspective on what it means to be different and kind of exposes many of the um, the blind spots in the liberal imagination of, of how to account for difference. And um, it also does this really cool um, discursive thing where it um, situates Yoruba cosmology as, um, as the dominant primary mode of knowledge of understanding what difference is so that everything else that comes after is simply just writing back or thinking in relation to what the Ifa priest in the story says about this character. 
Um, it's just, it's, it's a really beautifully written book. It has some fantasy elements as well. Um, it's heart-wrenching, but in a way that is very hopeful and, and beautiful. I, um, I just have a, a soft spot for writing that tries to kind of, of help us rewire ourselves to think differently about um, important things. So yes, this, this book definitely will be at the top of my list. And, and I do think that we need an African Literary Prize. I think it's pretty embarrassing that, um, that we still depend on this Western-centered um, prices. I don't get it. I don't know why there is no Pan-African Prize at the level of the booker. Um, you know, there have been attempts and they've failed, you know, for all kinds of different reasons. But I just want to put it out there in the universe that we are in a different moment now and that a prize like this, if it's done well, has a greater chance of thriving and surviving. So, you know, hey, maybe four of us have something. Um, yeah. we, we have, you know, let's get together. Well, we've, well, yeah. we've, we've, done, we've done it and, and the, the inaugural winner of, the, of, of our prize is Abdelaziz Baraka. So that's the two, two out of three. Uh, looking forward. Looking and, forward uh, and if you know some, if you know some sympathetic, uh, literary-minded millionaires living yes, on the African please. continent, send, tell them to call me, and I'll set up. I'll please, tell them to call please, you. I'll please, tell them to please, call please. You. tell them. Tell and, them. And looking forward to the prize next year. I think Layla's book, uh, when it comes out, is going to stand a really good chance. So, so looking forward to it. Layla, prom I, I promise not to call you out of nowhere to see what you wanted. My tender heart. <laughs> Thank you so, so much uh, to, to all of you um, for, for coming on to, to the podcast today. Layla Abulela, Bhakti Shringapre, and Anehi Adoro. Uh, the, I hope our listeners have heard all of the recommendations, uh, Abdulaziz Baraka Sakin, who's just won the prize. Uh, Anna, you spoke about An Ordinary Wonder by Wookie Papillon. And if you want to know how to keep up with the world of African literature, then do follow Radical Books um, and do check out Brittle Paper. Um, it's like, as we've discussed, it's easy to think that Africans aren't reading, but they're reading and they're reading in droves. And Often what we lack are those readerly communities. And I think that the work that you guys are doing is, is helping bring that back. So, so very grateful for it. Um, and, and do read all of, all of Leila's work and look out for the, for the, hopefully who can say, maybe there'll be other competitors, but uh, uh, upcoming Africa's a Country prize winning book, <laughs> which, which we'll look forward to Love talking about, about next year. Uh, so... A reminder to everyone as well to please subscribe to the show as well as review us on whichever platform you listen to. Uh, you've been listening to Africa's a Country Talk hosted by me, William Shorkey, and produced meticulously and wonderfully as always by Antoinette Engel in Cape Town. Thanks again to our guests and thanks to you, our listeners, and we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. Cheers.